Welcome to this episode of Clean Law from the Environmental and Energy Law Program at Harvard Law School. In this episode, Joe Goffman, our executive director, talks with climate economist Gernot Wagner about his latest paper showing how climate economic modeling can account not only for predicted damages linked to climate change, but also for the uncertainty and risk associated with climate change. Gernot also talks about his work with the late Martin Weitzman, one of the most influential climate and environmental economists who ever lived. We hope you enjoy this podcast. Let me say hello to a longtime friend and sometime colleague, Gernot Wagner, formerly of Harvard University and now at New York University. And Gernot, let's start off by asking you to give us your current title. Let me look that up. <laughs> so, so I teach at NYU. That is, in fact, true. And my formal title is I'm a clinical associate professor at NYU's Department of Environmental Studies and an associated clinical professor at the NYU Wagner School of Public Service. You used to be here at Harvard University, and so let me congratulate you again on the opportunity that you earned for yourself at NYU. Before we dive into the subject matter at hand, I want to do a little bit of a preview of what we're going to talk to you about today, Gernot. First, you and two co-authors recently published a paper about economic models for climate, and it seems to have had some implication about pricing CO2 and different ways of looking at not only its potential damages, but also risks associated with it. And in your background, you were the co-author with Martin Weitzman of a very important book about climate called Climate Shock. And since, unfortunately, we just lost Marty Weitzman, who passed away a couple of months ago, I may ask you to reminisce a bit about your experience writing that book with him, both for general purposes, but also because I gather that the recent work you did is in kind of a direct lineage with the work that Professor Weitzman himself had done and that some of the work you did with him. So let's hope we have enough time and strength to cover all those topics. One other thing I should mention is that we're recording this on Wednesday, October 23rd, 2019. And just this morning, Naomi Oreskes and Nicholas Stern published an op-ed in the New York Times that seems to very much touch on the same topic that your recent paper did. And in some ways, if I've read both your recent paper correctly and the op-ed correctly, your paper provides something of a remedy to the analytic problem that Professor Oreskes and Lord Stern identified. So let's try to cover all those things. And let's start by asking you, Gernot, to talk about the paper you recently published. Sounds like a plan. Uh, so basically, the, the origin story behind this paper was financial economics meets climate economics. So about a quarter century ago, um, 1991, so a bit longer by now, Bill Nordhaus, who shared the Nobel Prize last year for his contributions to climate economics and one of the key figures in the founding of the discipline. Uh, so a quarter century ago, he published the first version of um, his DICE model. DICE, as is in the name, it is about risk, it's about uncertainty, and so on and so forth. Well, around the same time, financial economists 
came up with better ways, or what they, of course, call better ways of incorporating risk and uncertainty into models of decision making. And for the most part, those two literatures, the financial economic one on the one hand, uh, the climate economic one on the other, were basically running in parallel. Those publishing in one, of course, knew of the other and vice versa. But at the end of the day, it was sort of either or, you know, pick your poison, pick your discipline. Until fairly recently. Uh, So a few years ago, sort of insights of the financial economic literature, which very much deals with uncertainty and risk head on. You know, something that sort of is in DICE's title, in the name, in Bill Nordhaus's model's name, but that the DICE model itself just doesn't do quite as well. It wasn't built to do that. Not to sort of Bill Nordhaus's miscredit here, like in many ways he was so early developing these first climate economy models, his own model, that the financial economics literature just wasn't far enough yet to have developed those concepts. But by now, right, we've sort of, you know, a few years later, couple decades later, there is what I would call sort of parallel ways of looking at the world, parallel ways of looking at risk. Let me just do a little bit of a restatement of what you said and why I think it's important and why I think a lot of listeners might think it's important. In the public discussion or the discourse in the political world and the policy world and the world of experts, there seemed to me, and your paper revealed it, at least retrospectively, kind of a disconnect between the models that people were looking at and talking about and the qualitative description of what climate change posed in terms of a threat. The models, the climate economy models, were focused on damages which relied on predictability. But there was a lot of use of the term uncertainty and a lot of use of the term risk. And it seemed, it sounds like, that the uncertainty and risk wasn't really reflected in the climate economy models. Yes, right. It is at least not reflected in the way that financial economists would like it to be reflected. I mean, just to be clear, there is lots of talk of the importance of taking risk and uncertainty seriously. But actually, you know, to, you know, in this case, Bill Nordhaus's full credit in the very first publication of his DICE model in Science Journal, he concludes that right, it should be emphasized that this analysis has a number of important qualifications, of course, you know, as every model always does, including the economic impact of climate change. That's a bit ironic, right? That's sort of what the model is supposed to be about, while he identified it as one of its key qualifications. And then he goes on and basically says, it abstracts away from issues of uncertainty. So despite the name, DICE, casting the die, throwing the die, it was very clear from the beginning that you mentioned the word before, deterministic, right? That Essentially, what's in DICE, what's in these climate economy models, is what can be quantified. Yes, there are provisions for the stuff we don't know, for the Don Rumsfeldian known unknowns. But frankly, you know, in some sense, again, by definition, they are not part of the core estimate here. That core estimate is, what do we know? How can we quantify those damages? How do we incorporate them into what some consider the world's most ambitious benefit-cost analysis, figuring out what one ton of CO2 emitted today 
And yes, that stuff sticks up there for a while, right? Half of it is still there about a millennium from now. What that ton emitted today does in terms of damages over its lifetime, discounted back to the present. So the very model structure is about what we know, what we can quantify. Meanwhile, and this in many ways is the emphasis of those focused on risk, focused on uncertainty, is that maybe the real problems are with the stuff we don't know. You know, not necessarily the unknown unknowns. Those are important too, but right. So we just don't know anything about them anyways. And yes, we need to be prepared for those too. But more importantly, it's about the known unknowns and how one might incorporate tail risk, the risk of low probability, high impact events into one's analysis. That's really where financial economists know quite a bit more, frankly, than the typical climate economist, where it becomes pretty clear that using the kind of model structure, the kinds of insights that financial economics gives us leads to potentially very different conclusions than the standard climate economic view. So you basically took the sort of qualitative or verbal description of risk and uncertainty and the known unknowns and using financial risk analysis, we're able to not only incorporate those into the analytic exercise, but actually produce some numbers. Yes. And just to be clear, we are not the first ones to do this. We cite a review article that reviews about a dozen or so efforts that had done something similar before. Basically use financial economic sort of modeling structures to make sense of price uh, each ton of CO2 emitted today ought to cost its social cost. I guess what's new here, what makes this different is, so we call our model easy climate. Easy has a very nerdy implications. Epstein Zinn, two economists, one actually stands in, teaches here at NYU. The two of them, uh, together with a couple others, one in particular, Weil, so some call it the Epstein-Weil-Zinn preferences. Most call it Epstein-Zinn. Poor Weil gets dropped. What these two did was come up with a new way, in many ways, to conceptualize how one might think about incorporating uncertainty. There's a bit of history here, too. Uh, by now, Epstein himself has published at least one prominent paper sort of fundamentally criticizing this model structure, whereas his co-author, stands in, sort of went the other way and in many ways is still using and showing how this insight plays a role and ought to be used more broadly. So Epstein isn't very happy with us using this. Zinn is very much happy with us using this for climate risk. But there's something else here too. It's a second meaning. Easy also, of course, stands for easy, simple. And that's really what we are going here for here. So implementing these Epstein-Zinn preference structures very quickly results in these massive modeling exercises. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, we have more powerful computers today than we did 20 years ago. So yes, of course, let's use that, of course. But frankly, what it means is sort of many of these models are simply these vast black boxes. Unlike Nordhaus's DICE model, it's very difficult to see what drives what. What are the important assumptions? What are assumptions that don't matter all that much to the final outcome? And that's what often makes it very difficult to, frankly, use one of those models to then kick the tires, figure out what drives the results. Meanwhile, 
our model tries to sort of go back to basics, create the simplest possible version of a model like this to truly be able to test what each of those different assumptions might mean for the final outcome. And yes, we do plenty of model runs ourselves in this first paper. Lots of others have tried that too. And basically, it's possible to do this in sort of a simple, open, modular way to frankly allow right, sort of the average grad student to play around with this model and sort of come up with his or her own results based on his or her own preferred assumptions. What I just heard you describe in terms of the easy approach is that managed to create some transparency. We've tried to shoot for transparency, but yes. And actually, uh, you know, not to make too much of what we tried to do here, but yeah, let me toot my own horn here. Uh, so it took us quite a while, frankly, to make it simple. You know, this is sort of the, you know, Mark Twain, right? If I had more time, I would have written a shorter letter. Well, in this case, you know, the first iteration of this model might have taken us a few months or so to try to get right. Overall, it's taken us maybe five years total. Um, and most of that was spent trying to simplify things. So we actually, even before I arrived here at NYU, we worked with a group of NYU grad students, actually, uh, in sort of a financial engineering program, who are very good at programming on the one hand and understand these financial models on the other. We basically gave them our original code, which you know had all the features, all the bells and whistles, but frankly was fairly convoluted at the time. And basically, the task for their capstone workshop for their master's program was, could you please take this code and make it as simple as possible? Not simple in the sense of making it run faster. It was already, you know, it was running pretty fast, was doing pretty well on that dimension. But to simply make the code itself easily understandable, make it modular, make it sort of in a way that if I want to tinker with just one little aspect of this, I'm able to without basically mucking up anything else. I leave everything else in place, change one little equation or change one input and see how the results change. So that really took up most of our time, at least when it came to coding this model. And yeah, I think the result in many ways is obviously I'm slightly biased here, but I'd like to think it does what it says it does. It creates a calculation, it creates a climate economy model like this, like a few others have done before, but does it in the simplest possible way. Now, you know, just to be clear, simple is relative, right? It still runs in a programming language that one first needs to learn, Python, uh, which is, you know, a fairly standard language, but on the other hand, still, it's not Excel. It's not an Excel spreadsheet <laughs> that everybody knows. But still, right, within that, it doesn't get much simpler to use. So it sounds like from the point of view of other people who might want to use this tool, there's some agility, there's some transparency, and there's some an added degree of user-friendliness. But let's turn to the, your paper and look at some of the results that you reported. I think one of the things that is noticeable is that you and your colleagues create an argument for high prices at the beginning, not necessarily starting at, say, a, if you're looking at policy design, a lower value, say, carbon tax rising to a higher value later, but rather starting out with a pretty high price in terms of the value of carbon dioxide removal or in terms of upfront investment. Do you want to sort of explain that and elaborate a bit? Basically, the core 
a conclusion that's uh, also in our title, Declining CO2 Price Paths. Right, as far as publications goes, of course, sort of the most incendiary thing ought to be upfront in the title uh, to draw attention to this. Well, basically, for the most part, when one looks at the sort of idealized way of approaching climate policy, the standard approach is you start low and you increase ambition over time. Okay, what's the logic behind that? Well, there are competing forces here. There are trade-offs. On the one hand, it costs money to transition to a cleaner economy, or at least that's the assumption, right? Some arguments to be made why it may not be as expensive as economists typically assume it would be. But never mind all of this, it is costly, right? Transitioning from dirty to clean energy costs money. Okay, so that's one. Uh, Second, climate damages accrue for the most part, right? Plenty of them hitting home already, but many of them, many more will hit down the line, decades, centuries hence, when stuff really hits home. And it's this fundamental trade-off, typically, and the discounting of those climate damages later on that leads to this sort of fairly standard conclusion that carbon prices start low today and increase over time. It makes sense. There are intuitive explanations of it. It's very simple to see how that is a standard way of uh, looking at the world. It comes out of Bill Nordhaus's DICE model, lots of models like this. Okay, our model turns this conclusion in many ways on its head. And you know, there's a few reasons why, but here's sort of one of the more fundamental one, which is built into the very modeling structure, which is we assume uncertainty today about climates in the near and not so near future might be pretty high today. But over time, some of that uncertainty, in fact, resolves itself. Or put differently, people living in 2300 know more about the climate in 2300 than we do about the climate in 2300. Now, you know, when I say this out loud right now, sort of it, it seems you know obvious, of course, duh, like, how can you not assume that? But actually, it turns out the very structure of some of these other climate economy models basically assumes the opposite, assumes that the further out we go, the less we know about the climate, which I you know, one version of the world, yeah, that sort of makes sense too, right? The further out you go, the less we know today. But that's not really the operative question. The question is, in fact, in 2300, do you know more about the climate in 2300? than people today do about the climate then. And I think, you know, put that way, it sort of completely, you know, seems completely obvious to me, at least, uh, how one would think about this any other way. Well, if you take this logic, sort of lead to its logical conclusions, sort of have it be the fundamental model structure that is one of the main driving forces behind this declining CO2 price path or set of declining price paths in the long run. Now, here's another one. Technological change, right? It costs a lot more today to mitigate than it does in the future. Well, if it costs a lot more today, and we know we do need to mitigate because of unmitigated climate change, we need to decrease CO2 emissions. Well, if it costs more, um, the price per ton of CO2 to lead to that decarbonization also ought to be higher. So all else equal, right? Same uncertainty, same everything else. If it costs more to decarbonize, well, on the one hand, we will decarbonize less as a result, sure, but 
the price, all else equal, will probably be higher today than it would otherwise be. Well, over time, the cost of decarbonization decreases, the price to decarbonize also decreases. One of the ways in which the paper has been read by people who have looked at it and attempted to translate it in for lay audiences has been not just to feature what you described as the rationale for the downward slope of the price over time, but also have focused on the fact that the nominal price now in the present and in the near future is higher than the conventional models have shown. And that's probably sounds to me like a way of being responsive to what Professor Oreskes and Lord Stern were trying to describe in their op-ed piece today, which is the so-called low probability but high impact damages or risks need to be priced in, given how much less we know now than we can expect to know in the future. Yeah, so that's part of the story, right? So like in many ways, uh, actually, we go through sort of great length not to mention our preferred price based on our sort of assumptions in the base case scenario, right? Sort of like there's lots of graphs in the original paper. Well, many of these graphs do in fact show what price per ton of CO2 comes out of our model. While we go through great length, in many ways, not, not to even mention that price, but let me just do it now. So yes, it's a lot greater than $100 per ton of CO2, which, depending on who you ask, is either a lot or still not quite enough. It's a lot relative to sort of the standard climate economy model pronouncements that basically show prices, you know, right around now, 2020 or so, of, let's say, $30, $40, maybe 50 per ton of CO2. So ours is above 100. Okay, what is that? I mean, first of all, uh, just because we say it should be that high doesn't make it so, right? There's obviously a big political dimension to all of this. But then, of course, the big question is, okay, so what are some of the wider implications of having a price that high? Well, one is, if the right price is $40, let's start with that, right? The Obama administration's social cost of carbon calculation comes up with a price for a ton of CO2 emitted right around now of around $40. Now, you know, the current administration has a much lower price. Let's not get into that, right? Lots of legal questions here. Let's start with $40. Okay, if $40 is the right price, and California, say, in its cap-and-trade system, has a price of around $15. Then you know, it means California is sort of on the low side, but it's kind of sort of doing the right thing. Right? It's the same order of magnitude. It's the sort of a system is in place. So you know, let's tighten the cap a bit. Let's do a few other things. But at the end of the day, what we are shooting for is $40. What California is doing, what the Europeans are doing with their emissions trading system, what lots of other efforts around the world are doing is sort of in the right ballpark when it comes to pricing CO2. Meanwhile, and there have been plenty of earnest economics papers written by some of my colleagues, uh, some of my close colleagues, that analyze other policies 
like let's say the Swedish carbon tax that's around $120 per ton of CO2 or German solar feed-in tariffs, which used to be much higher than they are today and were sort of around 600 maybe even $800 per ton of CO2, right? Very strong support for solar PV in that case. Very high costs relative to the Obama-era U.S. social cost of carbon figure of, of $40. Well, if you look at those other policies, the Swedish carbon tax, the German PV tariffs, the earnest economic analysis, you basically have to conclude that the Swedes are too ambitious, the Germans are too ambitious with their climate policy. Now, that's all based on saying the right price is $40. What the Germans are doing is very ambitious relative to it. If the right price, on the other hand, is you know, at least $100, or like in our paper, we go to the great length not to mention a price at all, but we basically say, look, there's lots of uncertainties. We just don't know. But let's present some very lowercase conservative calibrations here, and none of those get to a price below $100. Well, suddenly what the Swedes are doing, maybe even what the Germans are doing, is suddenly in the money, right? It's sort of in the range, in the ballpark, of possible climate policies in terms of their relative strength. And conversely, what happens in with California cap and trade, what happens with the European Union emissions trading system may well be entirely right, unambitious relative to what is necessary. Or, you know, looking at California specifically, right, there's cap and trade with its carbon price of around $15. There's the low carbon fuel standards with have an implicit carbon price of some like $150, 10 times as much. Well, looks like the low carbon fuel standards look much better than uh, the overall cap and trade system in terms of its strength, right? Cap and trade ought to be tightened by a lot to get to a price like this. And it may not even be possible to get to that higher price, at least not politically, with cap and trade alone. So essentially an analysis like ours might point to the necessity to do lots and lots of other things, what is often called complementary policies, but which may actually need to be front and center when it comes to something like incorporating the, the full external cost of each ton of CO2 emitted if the target for that level of ambition is you know, at least $100. So here's a way that a long time ago when some of Marty Weitzman's work became more widely known was talked about. And relating that to what you and your colleagues just produced, what we know is that what we don't know about climate might really hurt us very, very badly. And we need to figure out a way, at least analytically or in terms of looking at price ranges, we need to be able to translate that knowledge of the possibility of great damages we need to translate that into some sort of quantitative expression. And that's where it sounds like ending the separateness or parallelism of climate economy models and financial risk models was a very important thing for your predecessors and, your, and you and your colleagues to do. In other words, if we know that there is some risk of severe impacts, we need to figure out how to price that. And financial risk analysts know how to do that. So let's adopt their know-how. 
The short answer is yes. The longer one, of course, this is a very generous assessment of what we have done here, right? Following the footsteps of Marty Weitzman is, is frankly impossible <laughs> for many reasons. But yes, right? So Marty Weitzman had basically introduced some of the most potent critiques of standard climate economy modeling. Him and Bill Nordhaus have had epic debates about what sort of the right way of looking at this problem is in the first place. And Marty would have been the first one to say that what he had tried to do is basically shift the burden of proof. So he didn't provide an alternative. He didn't say, oh, this is the wrong way of looking at things. Here is my way. Here's the right way. So instead of calculating the social cost of carbon in a certain way and coming up with, let's say, $40, here's the alternative and the number ought to be much, much higher. So actually, I remember uh, going back and forth with him on the book we wrote, uh, Climate Shock. We never said that here is our preferred number. Right, where sort of there is chapter upon chapter or a couple chapters specifically targeted at precisely this the known unknowns and the tail risk and the uncertainties and so on. And the only dollar figure that each ton of CO2 ought to command, the only social cost of carbon ever mentioned in those two chapters is uh, $40, is the Obama era $40 social cost of carbon. We provided a, what I would think is a sort of a solid critique of those calculations especially vis-a-vis the uncertainty, uh, the tail risk aspects of it. But we don't provide an alternative. We basically sort of at the end of the day, right, we've sort of forced or since forced, sometimes forced to provide a number. We basically concluded by saying, well, if forced, we would still say $40 is the right number while emphasizing that it can only be a conservative lower bound of the true cost that each ton of CO2 causes, each ton of CO2 emitted um, causes. But at the end of the day, we came back to those $40. So yes, this, this new analysis basically tries to take the critique very, very seriously, tries to apply new ways of looking at the risk and uncertainty inherent in these calculations. And then Yes, for better or worse, does come up with an alternative number, which, you know, yet again, we sort of, you know, with sort of false modesty here, we try not to put in the paper itself, or we didn't put in the paper, in some sense, realizing that if we did that, that's precisely what everyone casually reading the paper would simply, you know, search for that number and then cite it and sort of ignore the rest. I'd like to think sort of it was it was a relatively good move not to do that because frankly not a single journalist who wrote up the results here emphasized the specific dollar figure largely because there wasn't one easily identifiable but they emphasized sort of the broader conclusions which was right if and when you take uncertainty seriously when you include it in the way financial economists would like us to include and so on and so forth there are these broad implications that that has, including increasing the price per ton of CO2 emitted today quite dramatically, sort of, you know, almost an order of magnitude or so, at least doubling, tripling at the very least. You know, that's only one of the implications here. But yeah, at the end of the day, it does try to take the Weizmann critique of sort of some of the standard ways seriously and try to incorporate that in the very model structure that we, we tried to come up with here. You just said something that really is worth underlining, which is it's not the dollar value per se. It's demonstrating what it looks like to take risk 
and uncertainty and the known unknown seriously, as opposed to just saying, well, here's the social cost of carbon and here's some hand-waving about risk and uncertainty and why the social cost of carbon dollar value is conservative. Essentially, what you did was display for everybody to see what it looks like when you take high-impact, low-probability risk or the known unknowns or that which we don't know could really hurt us seriously in an analytic exercise. It feels like this work you and your colleagues did and your predecessors did owes a lot to what Marty Weitzman. Oh, absolutely. Seminal <laughs> contribution. And it would be good to hear a little bit about what it owes to. Uh, well, I mean, frankly, Weitzman. the very sort of idea, at least uh, so not to speak about my co-authors now, who sort of came from this from a different angle, from sort of the financial economic side, applying those tools to climate. Important new for them, for financial economics, uh, risk management problem. Just speaking for myself now, yes, Marty Weitzman taught me most everything I know about climate economics initially. And yes, this is very much trying to do justice to some of those fundamental Weitzman insights into how one conceptualizes the risks inherent in his like to call the world's perfect problem, more long term, more global more uncertain, more irreversible than most every other public policy problem out there, or at least unique in the combination of the four, right? So just to be clear, there are other problems out there. You know, all-out nuclear war, yeah, that's global. It is certainly irreversible. It's also uncertain up to a point, maybe not all that much. Now, it turns out it's not very long-term, right? Person pushes button, 15 minutes later, world disappears, or at least world as we know it disappears, right? So the consequences are immediate, which one way of looking at this is to say, wait, that's even worse, right? Because there's very little you can do in those 15 minutes. On the other hand, it makes it so obvious how big a problem it truly is, that from a political perspective, from a policy perspective, it's, you know, relatively speaking, easier to try to do something about that problem then it about climate change were the full effects. And yes, we feel plenty of them today already, but the long-term effects, well, by definition, are very long-term. They are hundreds of years out, millenniums out, where what we do today, what we do you know, in the coming decades, affects life on Earth on this planet for centuries to come, potentially. And yes, it's this long-term nature that makes it so difficult to try to do something about the problem today from a very sort of real political perspective. Um, so it's some of those insights that, you know, either sort of tangentially sort of underline why this is an important problem in the first place, or for the matter that feed directly into the way the model is structured to incorporate some of these tail risks, some of these tipping points from the very beginning into our analysis. And basically take the calibration of those tipping points extremely seriously from the get-go. I can't let you go, Gernot, without getting you to talk about one of my favorite passages in the book, Climate Shock. It was a passage in which you and Professor Weitzman urged your fellow economists not to get stuck on endless elaborations 
of the perfect <laughs> yeah. solution or perfect policy designs, but actually to figure out constructive ways, I think what you and he refer to as second, third, fourth, and maybe even fifth best policy designs for dealing with pollution and climate change, in which I think you acknowledged that it was okay for economists to acknowledge the potential value of command and control, technology-based standards, and similar policy instruments. So since it's such a favorite, I was wondering if I could get you to talk about it a little bit before we go. I will try. So I, I assume you're referring to somewhere in the introduction, in the first chapter, we basically talk about economists had known about the solution forever. We as a profession have known about the solution to climate change, known in quotation marks, since before there was a problem. It was Arthur Pigou who basically said, well, let's just tax the problem away. Now, you know, just to be clear, he uh, he died a long time ago, Arthur Pigou did, so long before it was universally acknowledged that climate change was the problem. Pigou introduced this idea of what is now known as Piguvian taxation, worrying about rabbits overrunning a meadow, but you know the principle is the same. There is a difference between what the private individual faces as the cost and the social cost of one's actions. And in order to right the wrong, in order to internalize the externality, the solution is very simple. You internalize that externality by taxing it, by making sure that I, as the individual boarding a flight, fly across the Atlantic and emitting one ton of CO2, I don't just have the privilege of boarding the plane and enjoying the, the view and enjoying the trip, but I also pay for the pollution. I pay for the full cost that that one ton of CO2 emitted will have cost over its lifetime. And that's what often leads economists to then say, well, here's the first best solution. It's a carbon tax. And now there are epic debates whether it should really be a carbon tax or a cap and trade system. Both basically are first best approaches, carbon tax or carbon cap, these first best approaches to the problem. Now, I would sort of say that's sort of Econ 101, an Econ 101 view of the world. And yeah, you know, that principle is correct. There's one law in economics, and right? so we often pretend to be like physicists, and of course we are not. Humans don't behave like atoms in a vacuum. We have emotions and feelings and all that sort of stuff. But there is one law in economics. It's called the law of demand, the law of compensated demand, technically, which means price goes up, quantity demanded goes down, works Every single time, or at least a, a couple instances we know where it doesn't work, um, carbon isn't one of them. Okay, now, that basically leads to economists jumping up and down, shouting, shouting carbon tax all day, or maybe cap and trade. Now, of course, the real world is messy. And there, well, this is sort of, you know, earnest academic meets reality. There are, I would say, <laughs> lots and lots of esteemed colleagues, economists, who basically never go beyond shouting carbon tax, or basically saying, well, here's the solution, right? We know the problem, here's the solution. And actually, you know, there's some Marty Weitzman papers where he basically says, well, let's assume a world climate assembly where every country comes together and negotiates the ideal carbon price. So maybe even every citizen comes together, right? Seven billion of us in a room, and we negotiate the right carbon price, 
if and when that's possible, here is the solution. Well, turns out that's not really very practical. <laughs> Let's start with that. And of course, even the 180 or so countries meeting, well, we've had that. We've had that for you know, more than a couple of decades by now happening. And that too, of course, butts heads with reality and isn't a very practical solution to say that that sort of top-down thinking will lead to the perfect solution. So fast forward a bit and sooner rather than later, you are left with what you just call a second, third, fourth, nth best world where you know, in many ways economists would have to hold their noses and would have to sort of be allowed to remind everyone that in the ideal world, we would prefer a carbon tax. But, well, we are not in the ideal world, so fine, let's go with something else. And I guess what this sort of section of the book is trying to do is, you know, sort of say that that's okay. <laughs> and more importantly, say that, well, in an imperfect world, it's not just okay. Maybe there are, in fact, other imperfections that, in fact, demand other policies. While Econ 101 might tell us it's a carbon tax or cap and trade system that is the solution, well, Econ 102 might point to the fact that there are positive learning by doing spillovers, that the kind of deployment of new technologies like solar photovoltaic, for example, in fact, deserves subsidies, deserves additional support in order to right a wrong here, another wrong, which is that when an inventor sits in his or her garage trying to figure out how much to invest in this new technology, well, he or she does not incorporate the full social spillovers, the positive spillovers in this case, in that decision. But that person might only be concerned with his own profits and innovate accordingly. Meanwhile, there are positive spillovers. Society benefits from new technologies, typically. So we may want to subsidize those technologies. So you move from Econ 101 to 102 and you realize that, wait, picking winners, subsidies, picking particular technologies may actually be a good thing. Just looking at standard economics alone. Actually, last year, so unfortunately, Marty Weitzman didn't share the Nobel Prize with Bill Nordhaus last year. Turns out someone else did, Paul Romer. It's actually an NYU economist who shared the Nobel Prize with Bill Nordhaus for basically drawing attention to just this question, to what's called often endogenous technological change, basically inducing new innovation. And yes, a policy response there is to subsidize the clean, green, lean, mean, new technology. That's Econ 102, admittedly. It's not 101, but it certainly ought to be part of the solution as well. Well, Gernot, I uh, think a lot of people know that you are a highly accomplished, indeed, at this point, mere economist. But what they may not know is that you are also an award-winning teacher. And you certainly put those teaching skills on display during this interview. So I want to thank you very, very much for giving us all this time and for your great work and your great lucidity in Thank explaining you. it. Thank you.